This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, listeners. It's Nurse EpiPen here, holding the fort for um, while Dr Malpractice is on holiday. And he's gone overseas. And I was thinking, hey, wouldn't that be a good theme for today's show? But just wait a minute. So I'm going to get to that theme in a second. But I really just want to say that I feel honoured to be hosting this amazing show where guests will give up their free time climb out of warm beds and one guest this morning has even driven up from Geelong to be with us. So on today's um, panel we have Dr Spock who is a regular 3RRR guest with extensive experience in travel medicine and children and in particular he's going to talk about mozzie-borne infections. Good morning Dr Spock. Good morning EpiPen. And to his right, we have Dr Nick, who is a GP and a general um, reg- a regular uh, medical on the program, and he's going to tell us about some general health tri- tips. Good morning, Dr Nick. Hi, Epi. And the lovely, lovely doctor who's driven up from Geelong is Dr Kate Gazard, who's an advanced paediatric trainee working in general peds at Geelong Hospital with extensive experience in ED and ID. And you might ask what those initials stand for. So ED is an emergency department and ID is infectious diseases. And she's going to talk to us about visiting friends and relatives, which is a very interesting area of health because these people seem to be a a higher risk for some diseases. Good morning, Dr. Kate. Good morning. And then we have a very special guest who's first time on the radio and she is Dr Stacey Lynch. We've got lots of doctors on the program today. Even the panellist is Dr <laughs> Dr Kent. Um, so Dr Stacey Lynch is um, a senior research scientist with Agriculture Victoria, Department of Economic Depart- De- Development, Bandura, and she has a PhD in molecular viro- virology from the University of Melbourne. You may ask what is molecular virology and I hope we learn about that. And she's worked extensively in disease surveillance at the Institute of Infection and Global Health at the University of Liverpool. Um, Stacey is going to talk about Ross River virus surveillance because she, deep down, is a mosquito lover. Good morning, Dr Stacey. Good morning. Okay, so um, we're going to start in a sec and I just want to um, plug the Radiotherapy Facebook because at midnight last night (laughs) I put everybody's um, talks on and I I hope everybody's got a chance to have a look at those. But um, it's a regular spot to have a look and see who the guests are on each Sunday morning. So to take it away, we have Dr. Stacey, who's going to talk about mozzies. Go yeah. for it. Thank you. So I suppose in a, in a normal year, we um, act as the link between the Department of Health and, and local governments. Uh, so they, they collect mosquitoes, but they're not quite sure what viruses they're carrying and what sort of species they are. So they send them into our laboratory in Bandura, and we sit there and look at, it, look at them under a microscope and trying to distinguish different, um, different mosquitoes. And how do you tell one from another? Well, they have different legs. They have different proboscis, is how they um, bite people. Um, they have some different markings on their on their wings. Um, and then, I suppose, to look for viruses, we, we grind them all up um, and then put them onto a mammalian cell line, or a, so a, a monkey cell line, or an insect cell line. What does that mean? Uh, so we, we we I suppose obviously we can't put them into humans and can't put them into monkeys. So we have um, our cells in the in the laboratory that we've sort of um, as part of a, a, a tool that have probably been generated 
40 or 50 years ago that we can see if the mosquitoes, if the mosquito um, viruses will start to um, uh, change the formation of these cells. So we can, uh, do, they, do they kill the cells and things like that? We can have a look at that under a microscope. And, and so how do you catch the mosquitoes? Well, we you, you could use humans because obviously humans are, are quite attractive to mosquitoes, but we use um, a, a human bait. So it's we use carbon dioxide, which is we put carbon dioxide into a trap. The, the trap, I suppose, looks like a human breathing um, and the mosquitoes fly into the trap. We have a little fan that sort of um, propels them downwards and they go into a, a plastic container and they're flying around. Um, obviously, I suppose the Australian Post would have issues with us sending mosquitoes that are flying around. Um, so we put them in the, in the freezer just really quickly, make them go to sleep and then send them into our lab. So, Dr Stacey, I have to yeah. ask you, if, if mozzies are so attracted to carbon dioxide, as we're always told, why do they always bite me on the ankle? <laughs> I, th- I suppose the ankles, ankles are probably the most exposed. <laughs> um, and I'm not quite sure. They don't, um, yeah, they go for your legs. They sort of... I mean, I'm ever six foot tall. There's a long distance between my carbon dioxide. <laughs> well, they always get me on the ankle. That's it. There, there, there is a high gradient where they sort of, they attract. The ones that um, often feed mainly on birds, the best way to catch them is to put a trap in a tree because they're looking for the birds on the tree and not the birds on the ground, so... Mmm. And... And so tell us a bit about Ross River virus because I've read that that's something that you've been working on. There was a lot around this year. I think the Department of Health recorded close to 2,000 cases in Victoria um, and we definitely saw an increase in um, the isolation of these viruses from mosquitoes. Um, so there was uh, we detected virus from mosquitoes in northern Victoria as well as in Gippsland and even Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Well, I was holidaying down at Anglesey in January, February, and they got one of the highest areas. They did. It was so, definitely a hot spot around Anglesey. So. Yeah. Why, why? Do we have, know anything about why that has happened? I suppose, yeah, um, I suppose to have an outbreak of a disease, you need a couple of things. You need mosquitoes, you need um, humans, and then you need a, a wildlife reservoir. Um, and I suppose you've got to have a, a right number, right combination of those, and as well with the wildlife reservoir. So where the mosquito virus normally hangs out, um, it's good if they haven't had exposure to the virus before. So um, there's always a bit of debate about what the main um, sort of wildlife species for, for Ross River are, but kangaroos, possums... Um, uh, humans, horses probably play a role in, in maintaining the virus in the environment. Um, Do you, would you like to step us through how mosquitoes are hatch and larvae and... Sure. So uh, you might have been aware that only female mosquitoes actually transmit these viruses because female mosquitoes are the ones that, that seek out a blood meal. And the reason why they need a blood meal is because they need the protein for their eggs to develop. Um, uh, the mosquito's cycle depends on um, how much nutrients are around, the temperature. Um, but you can sort of say it takes... Um, 7 to 14 days for a a mosquito to pick up a virus from a blood meal and for that virus to replicate in the mosquitoes and be transferred to the saliva, so uh, where where the mouth parts are, um, and uh, feed, sort of better transfer the virus to a a person um, when they pick it up. But the the good news is... um, uh, it's thought that only 10% of mosquitoes um, actually live long enough to, to actually transmit the virus because although there might be a lot of mosquitoes around, they don't like hot temperatures very much, wind sort of affects them a lot. Um, so not every mosquito will be carrying a virus and it's, it's quite quite rare that you actually have mosquitoes that um, have virus and can transmit those viruses. Mm-hmm. And, and how long do mosquitoes generally live for? You said short yeah, time. Yeah, so in, in, in the labs they, they might get them and keep them alive for three months but in the field uh, less than sort of 10 days um, usually. Some of them may live to 14 days but that's really that, that small percentage which can go on to transmit virus. 
So, Dr. Stacey, tell us a bit about Ross River fever because it's something which patients sometimes come and ask me about and it seems to be one of those rather nebulous kind of questions and I find it very difficult to answer. So I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, I suppose um, I, I, I work very much with the, with the virus in the laboratory. Um, I know the Department of Health have a lot of information on their Better Health Channel. Um, but uh, Dr. Mike... Um, yeah, well, I mean, we see quite a we saw quite a few cases this year, and have uh, over the years seen cases of Ross River um, fever, and I mean, it can happen in kids as well as adults, of course. Um, I guess you, Dr. Nick, probably see people who come and say they're feeling pretty tired, um, and there's certainly a number of people who have uh, fatigue, chronic fatigue, perhaps, who think it might have begun with Ross River, and there is a, a connection there, perhaps. But the initial illness is a you know an illness with a fever and rash and aches and pains, a bit like the flu in a way, and uh, it's very it is as you say pretty nebulous, so it's hard to know whether it's that or or just some other virus. Mhm. Mhm anything else that any other so um cameron webb um is uh, a person uh, uh an entomologist who i heard speak and he um at an infectious diseases conference and he's sort of like a super sleuth mosquito catcher which do you know much about his work uh, I suppose yeah, we, we, we had a mirror experience in Victoria. So I think one of the, the projects that you're talking about that Cameron was involved with was trying to catch exotic mosquitoes in airports. So uh, in, in Victoria, we have had the same issue. So a lot of people go to holidays to beautiful exotic destinations and those planes come back and they've had an increased number of these exotic mosquitoes um, hitching, hitching, a, <laughs> hitching a ride on the planes. And um, when I talk about our normal roles to look at um, the, the endemic mosquitoes and endemic viruses, but if you start importing mosquitoes, from other countries, you're bringing in a whole a potential, a whole new uh, vector as well as a whole new batch of um, viruses. So there's been an increase in the last couple of years that they've managed to get under control now um, and we do extended surveillance in that area. But I, I, I've been to the same presentation when Cameron's described about trying to find mosquitoes and all little holes and nooks and crannies in the airport. Um, and the main thing is a lot of the, the waste bins as well. People sort of tend to throw their waste in. It generates a lot of water and these mosquitoes can breed in sort of even 200 mils of water um, in these areas, so but the definitely uh, there's definitely been a decline in the last couple of years, and um, and the procedures have have identified this this pathway and have um, reduced the occurrence of these mosquitoes coming into Australia. So they've done a really good job. Stacey, is, is that a really a, a, a true practical problem? I often think that it's a bit weird that we have to worry about things like there's a condition yellow fever that only occurs on two continents in the world, and everyone's really worried about a mosquito that's got yellow fever and it coming back into Australia or someone coming back into Australia with yellow fever. Is that really going to happen? I don't know. There's, there's, I suppose, growing anecdotal evidence that it's possible. I mean, Western Australia Health last year reported possibly the first case of what they called um, a suitcase dengue, um, which the only the only plausible um, evidence of transmission, the only plausible scenario for transmission was that you had an infected mosquito that was in a piece of luggage that possibly got um, transferred 400, 400 kilometres from the na- na- um, local airport and led to a, a dengue case of someone that had never travelled outside of Western Australia. So how, how plausible it is, it was definitely one of the, the, the ideas they threw up in the scientific paper um, and just these things are really difficult to prove. <laughs> I, I can remember in Cameron's presentation that he said how people were really felt reassured when the um, the staff came around and sprayed insecticide in all the cabins and he said that 
people should feel um, reassured when they travel because they do that now before people get on the planes yes. in case there's any asthma attacks or any... But it, they are onto it in trying to um, add some insecticide before people travel in the planes. Yeah, and they, they have a lot of uh, regulations that surround this to make sure that people um, are not adversely affected. And a lot of these chemicals they use for vector control are really well targeted to the mosquito species, so it's sort of quite environmentally um, sound practices. Now, I want to ask you another entomological question that's always puzzled me. Uh, we go through winter here in Melbourne, you don't see a mosquito for month after month after month, and then you get one hot day in early spring, and suddenly there are mozzies everywhere. Where do they hide? What, what, what's the sort of latent stage of the mosquito? Are they eggs or what? What's the story with these things? It's a really good question. And, and there, there are multiple different um, types of mosquitoes. There's multiple different species. Uh, sorry, multiple different stories of how they survive over winter. So some of them will survive in like in a dormant larval state. So they would have emerged from the egg and just sort of wait for the, the, in, um, the stimulus to kind of progress through that developmental cycle. Um, whereas the other ones, which is probably the most... Um, cause us the most grief in surveillance is that that their eggs are are desiccant resistant so the eggs can survive all the winter it's not until you have that first rainfall that you have a rainfall you have a massive hatching of eggs and an increased mosquito and that's probably what you find in places like Anglesey so a lot of those mosquitoes are 80s mosquitoes they're salt marsh mosquitoes the eggs that you uh, the mosquitoes that you detect early in spring were the eggs that were laid the year before. And so the, so the backup question to that is uh, when you go bushwalking in some remote area and you wander in some bit of bush and you're quite certain that no human being has been there for the last three years and as soon as you disturb any piece of undergrowth, this huge horde of mosquitoes appear and start munching on you. What have they been living on all this time while I wasn't there? Well, not, not all. Um, a lot of... A lot of the biggest vectors in the world are mosquitoes, which don't just rely on a single species. Um, so whether it's a, a dog, cat, human, bird, lizard, frog, they will try and seek out a blood meal for anything that comes into the bushes. Um, I have to. I can't profess to uh, being a mosquito lover myself, um, but what do the male mosquitoes eat if it's only the females who bite? Ah, good question. So, uh, The male mosquitoes require some energy. They, 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 they spend most of their days chasing females. Um, <laughs> so they, they, they actually use um, uh, plant fluid and nectar. Um, and female mosquitoes actually f- feed on nectar and, and plant um, fluids as well. So. How, how did you ever get into an area like this? Oh, well, I... Um, I suppose I, I'm, uh, I'm a virologist. I, I enjoy the outdoors and I always like the concept of One Health. Um, so what does approaches. a virologist mean or what do they uh, do? Uh, study viruses. Um, and uh, I suppose uh, 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 One Health surveillance programs and One Health uh, concepts always in, 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 um, was quite interesting because you're bringing together animals, the environment and humans together. It's always a dynamic area of interest and you get to meet a lot of people from very diverse backgrounds that are really excited in what they do. Um, and I think entomologists are definitely <laughs> some of the, the most excitable people <laughs> that I've met before. Um, yeah. Great. Great. What about, I know that you do some work with uh, sending out chickens to try and survey some of these uh, diseases. Yeah, so um, in, in Victoria we have Ross River virus, which we detected quite a lot this year. But we also have the more deadly virus called Murray Valley encephalitis, which is part of the Japanese encephalitis serogroup of virus. So these viruses cause can cause encephalitis. There's a lot of subclinical infection, um, but on a rare occasion people... Um, can, can die from these viruses. Um, one, of, one of the ways that we've used since the 1974 outbreak to detect this virus is sentinel chickens. Um, and the 
idea is that this virus is normally um, normally survives in an environment between birds and mosquitoes, and so chickens act as that bird reservoir. Uh, the chickens don't get sick, they don't amplify the virus, but it's a way in which we can test the chickens on a regular basis in high-risk areas and see whether or not there's evidence of, of the virus circulating. And with that information, the Department of Health can then uh, look at the public health messaging, increase people awareness, and possibly increase some control of mosquitoes in those areas. Hmm, fascinating. Any other questions from the uh, learned panel? No? All good? Um, Dr Spock, um, you've very kindly come back into the um, program and uh, what have you got to offer with regard to travel advice and vaccines and mosquitoes? And I know we have probably could talk with you for probably a couple of hours, but just give us a little summary of what's... Well, I I guess Stacey was just talking about Japanese encephalitis then. And uh, people may well be aware that um, a guy at the Royal Melbourne Hospital died this week um, with Japanese encephalitis. And and what was particularly... And that's a pretty distressing thing, of course, but particularly interesting about it, I suppose, was that he apparently um, had only travelled to Phuket in in Thailand. And, And that's not a place that most of us think about Japanese encephalitis in a, in a big way um, I mean I confess I'd, I would I have never recommended Japanese encephalitis vaccine for someone going to Phuket um, Japanese encephalitis is as Stacey was saying is a virus and um, it's a virus that that is occurs throughout although the name is Japanese encephalitis it, it's uh, the first case was found in Japan in the 1800s or something or other, but actually because they instituted a, a vaccination program, they don't have much of it there. But um, it occurs throughout Southeast Asia and, and through uh, sort of also Northern Asia. And in places like Thailand, it's what we call endemic. There's tonnes of it around. And so there's cases occurring all, all through the year. And so it's, it's certainly something to think about, but it mainly occurs in places where um, there are rice paddies and there are lots of wading birds and pigs um, because they're the, the intermediate vectors, they're called. They're the, and the, just Stacey was talking before about the reservoir. They're the animals that get the mosquitoes bite. They pick up the virus from the animals and then get actually more by biting again. They get more of a blood meal with more virus and that gets amplified, so more and more of it in the mosquito, and then they bite a human. But there are very, very few around the Phuket area. So what would be the signs and symptoms of um, JE as its buzz name or Japanese encephalitis? So JE, the first important thing to say actually is most people who get bitten by mosquito carrying JE don't get any symptoms at all. That's the most common thing, in fact. And so lots of people in these countries who live in countries like Thailand, when people have gone in and done... Uh, studies and done taken blood tests from them, they found that they've got the antibodies against it and they've never been sick that they were aware. So the most common thing is to have no symptoms at all. And then after that, um, I guess the symptoms are encephalitis means brain inflammation and so they're brain inf- brain, it's brain in symptoms, I guess, neurological symptoms. The first ones are actually usually like vomiting and aches and pains and a flu-like illness and then it evolves to, to include... Um, getting a bit confused and, and getting sicker from a neurological point of view. So there is a vaccine against um, JE, isn't there? 
And, and if I might ask you, Dr. Spot, this, this from a GP's perspective, is an advice nightmare territory because you've got this vaccine which uh, is more than one dose, it's expensive, and yet here you've got a bloke who was on a short ordinary tourist-type holiday in a standard tourist area of Thailand where we wouldn't normally recommend vaccination. And now I've got people coming in saying, I'm taking my wife and three kids for 10 days to Thailand. Should I have Japanese encephalitis vaccination? What's the answer? Well, and, and you know this yourself, Dr Nick, that um, I, I always declare when I see patients that I'm inherently a risk-taker and that I would not necessarily uh, do things, but I recommend that you do things. Um, but the, the point is that the Japanese encephalitis, JE, is, is really rare. It occurs in about one in a million travellers. And so it's important to keep that in mind. It's not to say that now that everyone going to Phuket is going to get JE, um, but it can occur in the area. This is the first case this year in Phuket. So that's an important, you know, there's only, and they have hardly any cases ever in, in Phuket. So we have to keep that in mind. And as you say, it's an expensive vaccine. There are, there are actually two vaccines and one of them is just one dose and one of them is two doses, but both are pretty costly. Uh, and invariably, people going to Thailand are having other things like hepatitis A vaccine or typhoid vaccine, which are probably more important. And, and they can't, for a family of four or five, having all of those vaccines may not really be uh, an expense they want to add to the expense of going to Thailand in the first place. So all that has to be taken into account. But I would normally say that it's not common It's and you could focus on trying not to get bitten by mosquitoes in the first place by making sure you use repellent. Repellent and clothing and what else do you advise? Well, you don't necessarily have to wear clothes. I'm all into nudity. <laughs> I'm into nudity. But, um, yeah, no, clothing, it, what you're saying there, Pen is that um, what you, wearing light coloured clothing and wearing you know loose co- clothing and covering the ankles and the wrists are, are important things to try and prevent getting bitten in the first place. Dr Nick needs very very long <laughs> pants to cover his ankles, but um, you know we sort of concentrate on those things. Concentrate on also trying to have an environment. If you're particularly, it's not so much in Phuket, but in some areas where there are lots of mosquitoes, fly wire, sleeping under a net if if that's appropriate, depending where you are. So all these things, physical things, to try and not get bitten in the first place, um, and then and then repellent, and there's or, or something. Um, that kills mosquitoes. So repellent repels the mosquitoes and there's all, there is also compounds that one can use, you can put onto nets or onto clothes to kill mosquitoes as well. So there are a range of things that one can do without having the vaccine. That's not to say that it's not a good idea to have the vaccine. If you could afford it and you want to have it, it doesn't last um, a long, long time, probably three years or so. So uh, you would need to have it again for another trip perhaps, but not a bad idea. So one of the things I, th- I think is so important about this is what you mentioned earlier about risk. People have this sort of idea that they can go travelling to exotic places and make it risk-free. And this it just simply isn't true. And it's all about balancing risk, as, as I think you touched on. And I think it's something travellers need to be aware of, is that if you're going to make a decision to go to places where there are endemic, these diseases that live in the country all the time, there is no guaranteed way of making it safe. Even vaccination isn't 100% protective. So we have to take a range of measures and we have to recognise that there is a risk to doing this. But, hey, there's a risk to staying at home. So I'm not saying we shouldn't go travelling. So sometimes when I talk to 
to um, patients that don't have a spleen, we talk about accommodation as well. So the backpackers in cheaper accommodation are slightly more at risk, whereas the ones in four and five star accommodation seem to be slightly less risky. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's depends on the the disease pen, and that you know there are some things. Hepatitis A is a good example of something that it can occur in someone. The five star tourist as well. It's in the water supply in many countries, and so and it's pretty hard to avoid. Even if you're careful about drinking bottled water or boiled water, you know people's you know they brush their teeth, they get in the shower, and they splash some water on themselves, and accidentally drink it, and they can get hepatitis A. So, but as Nick says, it's all a balance of risk, and actually. The biggest risk for a traveller is trauma and getting knocked over by a motorbike or something rather or doing stupid things like I have done myself, which is ride on a motorbike in speedos without a helmet in, you know, in Thailand <laughs> on my honeymoon. That's the sort of thing that you're ri- is much more risky actually than, uh, you know, JE. But closely followed by sexually transmitted infection as being another high risk for many travellers. Take us back to, the, and uh, Dr Stacey, you might want to comment on this, uh, uh, mosquito repellents, because I think there's a lot of urban mythology out there about what's safe and what isn't. And you'll see, particularly in Asia, there's a lot of advertising saying no DEET because diethyl toluamide, which is DEET, which is the stuff that actually works, is seen by some people as being toxic and dangerous. And so there's a lot of advertising overseas saying here's this non-DEET repellent. I have a sneaky suspicion that no DEET, no work. Uh, Tell us about mosquito repellents and what we should actually use. Well, uh, I mean, you're right, Dr Nick... um DEET is the repellent that's got the best evidence, actually, the best evidence of effect and the best evidence of safety, as a matter of fact. So um, there there certainly have been um, reports of DEET causing a number of problems and it can cause local reactions. So that's the, the biggest problem would be local reactions on the skin. Um, and it, But there can also be some serious things. There have been case reports of children who've had DEET put over them probably in... Uh, too, you know, too much, too frequently and too much, um, who've had seizures. So it can be neurotoxic DEET. And that's been one of the things that pe- people have been concerned about. But as a matter of fact, if one keeps to a reasonable percentage, so less than 30%, most of our products in Australia are about 7%, the, the routine ones. So and then what, there are ones what would those brand names be? Well, you know, we don't like to mention particular brand names, but, but things like RID, Aerogard, those sort of things are... Um, about seven percent tropical strength rid and tropical strength air regard are about 19 or 20 percent and they're still below the 30 percent level that is perfectly safe in people there in most or in children and adults alike there are some preparations like bushman's friend and others that are like 50 to 80 percent and they're probably a bit too much they're too strong in terms of people say well that, that you should use that to really because if you really want to protect yourself against things like malaria and and je and so on but the risk there i think the risk of using those outweighs the benefit and the real risk of 80 percent deet is it when you get it on your hands and then get it on your camera or your phone it'll melt the plastic yeah it is pretty t- yeah, yeah, it's very, toxic stuff it's very potent stuff but one thing I, I do want to pick up on is that there other it's it is fair to say there are other repellents now with good evidence so picaridin and there are a couple of other ones too pmd is another one these are these are repellents with very good evidence base that are probably as effective as DEET. I, I still prefer to recommend DEET because that's the one that we know the most about and as i say although there are concerns we know the most about its safety and, and sorry for those, because I don't know those chemicals, for people who are listening who might want to choose a non-DEET repellent here in Australia, which are saying does it at least have some evidence of effectiveness, do you know what the brand names are of those ones? Because that might be very helpful. 
the, the main one that people will have heard of is Off. And Off is one that has got... Actually, there's a... a there, I, I believe there's an Off that has got Deet and there's an Off that's got Picaridin in it. So you just put the Off on. It sounds like the advice I always get from my IT specialist when my modem doesn't work. <laughs> exactly right. So, um, and your topic today was mozzie-borne um, infections. Yeah. So what... So we know of a classic, it all starts with an M, capital M, that everybody likes to know, have more information about. Well, yeah, the thing is malaria is what you're talking about, I assume. Yeah. Uh, EpiPen, nurse EpiPen. But um, so malaria is obviously, that's a, one of the biggest killer of children under five in, in the world. So uh, it's something we want to try and prevent, obviously. Now, the, again, talking about risk, the reality is that if any one of our uh, kids or grandkids or whatever are going travelling to a place where there's malaria, the risk of them getting very sick and dying of malaria is pretty low. The, the kids who are dying in the world of malaria already have under other illnesses, HIV, malnutrition and so on, and that's particularly why they're vulnerable. And so we have to, again, balance that out. But um, someone going to an area of really high risk in Africa, Papua New Guinea, um, other many parts of Southeast Asia... Um, do, should be given some protection against malaria. And in the case of malaria, unlike all these other things, it's not a vaccine, it's antibiotic we give. We give an antibiotic that is the same antibiotic that's used to treat malaria, because it's a parasitic infection, malaria. We give the same antibiotic for treatment, but we give it in lower doses as a preventer to prevent serious malaria. So, so would you like to comment about the soldiers that go to Afghanistan or somewhere and the mefloquine risk and controversy? Yeah. So, so... Um, we have a lot of information. In fact, most, a lot of the information we have about the medicines used for malaria are from American soldiers because those poor American soldiers, um, they have to do what they're told, and I suppose all soldiers do, but those American soldiers, you know, but when they go, get deployed to Afghanistan, they have a whole lot of blood tests beforehand, they have to take certain things, and then they're a, a very good source of information for studies for us to learn for to, for the future. And what's happened is that the medicine they were using mainly for those soldiers uh, deployed to Afghanistan and other parts um, to prevent malaria was a medicine called mefloquine. And mefloquine um, has got well-known adverse effects that are rare, um, which are particular, but are concerning because they're neuropsychiatric, neurological and psychiatric side effects, which freaks everyone out. And they're very rare, but if you've got, and they're more common if you've got an underlying neurological or psychiatric problem. So we would never prescribe them for someone who's already had some neurological problem or some psych illness. Um, but it can occur in anyone. And although they're incredibly uncommon adverse effects, they have occurred in the soldiers and where in the States particularly they're very worried about liability, they have put a black box warning on mefloquine. And what that means is it's not to be used. There's this big thing saying, you know, it's a, a major risk and should not be used. But that really is on not that many events and is not something that we have uh, has stopped us using mefloquine in Australia for example we with the appropriate uh, warnings i think mefloquine is a, a safe and effective drug to use and, and i would entirely concur with that uh, we still use mefloquine the trade name larium but exactly as you say from our perspective in primary care it's about making sure people don't have a personal history of something significant psychiatric or neurological and the other thing I think people should be aware of is that there are some psychiatric illnesses which have a strong family history and perhaps the most 
genetically um, determined psychiatric illness is bipolar disorder. And so I won't give mefloquine to anyone with a family history and a first-degree relative of bipolar because I think the risk is too high. But apart from that, I completely agree it's a safe drug. You mentioned the antibiotic, doxycycline being the standard one for malaria, but we can't give that to kids under the age of about 10. So what's the anti-malarial of choice for children? So, yeah, doxycycline, yeah, we don't normally give to kids under the age of eight or so. And uh, so for younger children and for breastfeeding women and pregnant women where there's a risk to the, the fetus or uh, the uh, the baby, um, we'd recommend mefloquine or atovaquone proguanol, which is also known as malarone. Um, both of those uh, drugs have been shown to be safe and they're equally effective um, for malaria prevention. So that's what we'd recommend. Right down to, I mean, I, I would recommend for a newborn baby going to, to you, you, you might say to parents taking a newborn baby to Africa, they may, they may want to defer a little bit. It's going to be tricky looking after the baby at the best of times, let alone in Africa. But um, if, they are, if they are going to an area where there's malaria, I would recommend mefloquine for that baby most likely. So travel advice, where do people, listeners today and us in the future, where do we go to get information or who can we talk to about travel and in particular timing of seeking this advice? Yeah, well, uh, there, there are a number of uh, resources online for starters and, and I guess that's where many people go these days. They start planning their trip. They look online for flights and for uh, you know, accommodation and there may be travel insurance and then maybe they think about what diseases are there or whatever. Um, and the the thing to do is to make sure you get a reputable site. And so the CDC, WHO and a group in the UK called NAFNAC and, and th- I mean, there are others and, uh, you know, there's the, the, but those three I'd say are the, probably the most reputable sites for giving advice about diseases that occur in places and, and there's advice both for health health practitioners and also for for the public Um, but all of those sites invariably what they'll do is list a list of these diseases occur here and these are the list of vaccines you should have with no sort of real advice about which one's more important than other and that whole stuff we talked about before risk so that's where I think you need to go and speak to someone and the best person of all is to go and speak to someone like Dr Nick you speak to your GP there are people who nowadays who specialise in travel medicine. So there are GPs that set themselves and others who set themselves up as people who know more about travel medicine. So you might want to choose a, a particular travel clinic. But I would say that it's, you know, the first place to go is to your own GP who knows you, who knows your medical history, met the medicines you're on, your other problems and begin there. And they may refer you on if they're concerned. Mm. I suppose I had a patient that uh, rang in the other day and she's off to Africa the next day. Yeah. And I said, you are such a scallywag. <laughs> she was probably a healthcare worker, right? <laughs> she was a travel agent. Oh, tra- oh, there you go. Well, for me, it's colleagues at work who say, yeah, I'm going tomorrow to, for six months of Africa, what do I need? Which is not terribly good timing. So you asked about timing. Probably the best thing of all would be to get in to see someone at least six weeks beforehand because you need time to, to consider everything. A lot of the vaccines, rabies, for example, rabies vaccine and, uh, and Japanese encephalitis vaccine and others have a schedule where you have at least the uh, two or three doses with a month between the first and the last and so you need at least a month um, the little babies a thing i'm particularly passionate about is making sure that babies going to areas where there's tb have bcg vaccine you need to have that at least a month before you go so 
probably if you get in six, eight weeks, I mean, the, the longer the better, really. But um, about six weeks would be reasonable. Mm, fantastic. Great area of medicine and wonderful um, advice you've given us today. In the studio, we've got Dr. Nick Carr, we've got Dr. Spock, we've got Dr. Stacey and Dr. Kate, who's about to take it away, talking with us about friends and visiting relatives and a group of people that come and go. Thank you. Um, So I... I see a lot of children, especially in the emergency department, and one of the most common um, presenting problems is fever in children. Uh, And about 99% of the time they have a viral infection, which doesn't often need any treatment. Um, And one of our jobs is to rule out a serious bacterial infection. Um, so parents often are very concerned when their children have very high fevers, up, you know, above 40 degrees, um, and it's often not really the, the height of the temperature that's so worrying is really the cause. And um, a high temperature itself is not dangerous to the child because it's their body um, generating that temperature. Uh, high fevers are only worrying if, if it's from an external source, like if they're stuck in a hot car. Um, so generally, as long as we can find a reason for them to have the fever, we don't worry so much, which can be a bit confusing for parents when we say, oh, good, they've got tonsillitis, this is excellent, they're in excruciating pain and have a fever, um, but we know why. Um, so then the, one, the children that we worry about are if they've got a fever and it's not, there's not an obvious cause and we wonder if there's a serious infection or if they've come back um, from overseas and might have a tropical disease um, or if they're not immunised. Um, and so there's a group of children um, and adults as well who, are, apart from the usual tourism going overseas where you often will go to a travel clinic and get immunisations and get advice on, you know, nets and malaria prophylaxis. Um, there's a group called um, VFRs or um, Visiting Friends and Relatives Overseas who often are at a much higher risk of serious infections um, just because they don't have the same awareness and the same kind of immunisations that, um, that people who are going on a tourist trip do. Uh, and there's sort of two groups, and the first is the immigrants, so immigrant VFRs who were born overseas and often and moved to Australia, so they've often come from a lower income country, and when they go home, um, they often are at a higher risk of infection just because they've reduced their immunity and they might, but they might feel that they're still, you know, don't need prophylaxis for malaria or need to worry about clean water and food. And um, and then the other group are traveller VFRs who are the uh, spouses and children of the immigrants who are born in Australia but have a lot of family and relatives overseas. And when they go to visit, they're often at a much higher risk um, because they won't have the immunity and they won't have the... Um, their guts aren't used to the bacteria in the water and if they often go for longer than, than tourists. Um, so there's obviously a variety of um, risk factors and you know, which country they go to and which, um, what the, the high-risk infections are over there uh, and the duration um, of their stay as well. Does a patient come to mind or a child that you could just give us an example of? Uh, I've, we've had a few with typhoid fever who have gone over and um, obviously you can get salmonella from 
in Australia as well um, because that's a bacteria, but it's more prevalent in Asia and other and other countries. And so they, um, some children who were eating meals prepared by the family overseas and they, you know, didn't, they drank the water that might have been contaminated and um, they came back and had very high fevers and were quite unwell um, with typhoid fever. Um, we've also had um, lots of children who've been exposed to tuberculosis um, and especially under six months, as Dr Spock said, are at a much higher risk. Um, so they, yeah. And what do we do for them when they come here and they get sick? Uh, so the first thing is trying to figure out why they have, you know, if, if they're just presenting with fever or what, um, whether they're well or unwell and treating them. So if they need resuscitation, first doing that and then taking an extensive history, finding out who, where they travelled to, you know, were they exposed to mosquito bites and did they have anyone else who was sick that they are in contact with? Have they had things like vomiting or diarrhoea or is it just a fever? Uh, and then doing lots of blood tests and especially if you're worried about malaria, um, we do a blood test and um, called a thick and thin film, um, looking for the parasite in the blood. Mm-hmm. It's, it's actually a really important message, isn't it? Because we do have a lot of people who live in Australia, have been here for a number of years. They go back to see family and friends, sometimes in rural parts of Asia, for example. And <laughs> for them, this is normal. This is where they came from. And so they don't think of this as a travel health issue but they don't realise that, quite naturally, malaria immunity, for instance, has waned because they're not being exposed to the mosquito and the, and the parasites on a regular basis. So it's a message, I think, is not out there much in the community at all, that for these people, they need to take this travel as a health issue very seriously and they need to go and get help. One of the things I find quite hard is I'm not, as a GP, even though I'm quite good at travel stuff, I find myself struggling a bit sometimes to advise these people because I'm not sure what they need. Is there, is there somewhere that people who are in this VFR category, the visitors and families and relatives, uh, is there somewhere, a sort of specialist service of any kind, where they can get help? There, there's certainly... Um, there are immigrant, immigrant clinics for children in Melbourne through the Royal Children's and um, immunisation clinics. Um, yeah, and there are, there are also the, the specialist travel clinics we talked about before. I mean, most of those of us, and I run a travel clinic at the Children's, but uh, the, most of those travel clinics will be familiar with dealing with those sorts of cases as well as, you say, Kate, the immigrant health clinics and immunisation clinics are around the place. The other thing I want to take you back to is that question of fever, um, because not specifically travel related, but uh, such an everyday problem. And I think something like 95% of all parents are terrified of fever because they have this fear that their child is at risk of convulsions if they have fever. And there's a huge amount of misinformation out in the community about this. And one of the things I say to parents is not about the temperature, uh, it's about the sudden rise in temperature that is the risk for convulsions. And we can't prevent that. No amount of paracetamol, no amount of filling your child full of antipyretics, so-called the neurofens and panadols, will prevent that. so what, would you, what do you say to parents about fever and how concerned they should be? Because you have people taking temperatures all the time, monitoring and treating and trying to prevent this possible complication. 
So generally, if um, if the child is otherwise well and drinking and not becoming dehydrated, and we've got a clear source of fever, such as you know a virus like a cold and runny nose, then we know why they're having a fever, and we don't. There's nothing that we can do to treat that. They just get over that themselves. Um, and there's no, as you said, there's no way we can prevent febrile convulsions and there's not really any way of predicting who will have them and, um, and what will happen. Um, so if, if a child has had a febrile convulsion, they are generally not at any risk of brain damage or any, any complications from that. They might be at a slightly higher risk of having another febrile convulsion in the future, um, but overall they're not, um, not deemed to be dangerous um and as long as the the fever is likely from a virus we usually will send them home just with some advice and uh, to come back if they're worried um our main concern from the medical point of view is if if a child has a serious bacterial infection and if they need urgent antibiotics and treatment because they can become quite unwell I mean, my my main advice to parents is to stop taking their kids' temperatures because <laughs> because we don't we don't really mind what the thermometer says. What I say is focus on your child, not on the thermometer. You treat the person, not the thermometer. They're either hot and okay, leave them alone. They're hot and miserable. They need some treatment. But, and isn't it also classical that um, temperatures will come out, go up and down? Um, you know, you don't stay high often straight you know, on that 40 right, degrees. If this was a visual medium, you'd see the beautiful graphics <laughs> that EpiPen is doing. My arms circadian, are flapping. The circadian <laughs> rhythm of temperature variation through the 24-hour period. Yeah, of course, temperatures go up at night time, come down during the daytime. Yeah. Natural process. Now, and I went to a talk uh, not so long ago, and they, um, it was a, um, a nurse that was an expert in um, fever, so feverologist, and he was saying that the reason that we get a fever is that that's the hypothalamus really firing up, and it's a response um, to re- um, release white blood cells and um, get them into the bloodstream. Is that what anybody else thinks about? Why why do we spike a temperature? What's happening? Well, I mean, as Kate said, it is it's it is the body's response to an infection, and I mean it's it's actually. Uh, quite a complex process that it's certainly the hypothalamus is involved but there's a number of um, immune uh, cascades that are that occur there's a a number of inflammatory um, molecules in the body that are increased and depending on the sort of infection where it is in the body and so on there'll be a number of uh, cells those immune cells that will go to that region of course you've got a flu or something that's general then you have those circulating all over and they're often the thing that make people feel unwell the immune mediators and that's why the the paracetamol and the ibuprofen that dr nick talked about that they they're not really about you don't give them for the fever we try and particularly in children de-emphasize they're not we're they're not fussed about the actual height of the fever, but they will give symptomatic relief. Mm. Wow, great. So if you've just tuned in, we have in the studio Dr Spock, who's an infectious diseases physician, Dr Nick, a GP, Dr Kate Gazard, um, an ID uh, paediatric trainee, and Dr Stacey Lynch, a, um, a mosquito expert. But we're just going to wrap up the show with uh, Dr Nick giving us some general advice on travel. Over to you. It's such a um, ubiquitous area travel and people go to their GPs, they talk to each other, they get advice from all over the place and I actually did a, a sort of 
mini study once. I had a patient who was going with a group of friends to Bali and elsewhere in Indonesia for a three-week trip. And I said, just do me a favour. When you have these meetings, because there are ten of them, they were getting together, planning meetings. I said, can you just write down the advice you've been given by the different doctors about what you should do in terms of vaccination and anti-malarials? And she brought this piece of paper in, and we both had a good laugh because every single couple had been given different advice by different doctors. And the interesting thing about it was none of the advice was wrong. And this is part of the point that uh, Dr Spock has been making, is that it's about risk. There is no risk-free way of travelling. And there are lots of different ways you can approach travel. And there isn't necessarily an absolute correct or incorrect way of doing it. It's about people assessing their own risks and how they prefer to do things. We have people who want to have lots of vaccines and so want to be covered, and they sometimes say, I want to be covered for everything, um, which, of course, makes my eyes roll. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Bring out the Japanese encephalitis and rabies <laughs> vaccines again. Um, so it's an important point people need to understand is that there is no absolute right or wrong way of doing travel. And it is sometimes helpful to talk to a doctor who knows you well because they know your background history, but also you can talk a bit more about levels of risk. But I'm very interested in, in sort of the ordinary everyday stuff, being an ordinary everyday kind of a doctor. And one of the things people ask me about is about long-haul flights and, and this risk of blood clots and DVTs, which is a bit of a spectre. I certainly know there's a friend of mine who had what's called a pulmonary embolus where a blood clot went from his leg into his lungs, a very serious and potentially fatal complication of deep vein thrombosis. And most of us know people who've had DVT, deep vein thrombosis, and we now know that this is connected to travel. It doesn't have to be in an aeroplane. It can be um, travel long distance in a vehicle. And so how do we prevent getting DVTs? And like so many things in medicine, of course, the answer is, well, we're not quite sure. Um, lots of uh, conflict about this. Uh, number one piece of advice probably for people not to do for most people is take aspirin. So aspirin is well known as a clot preventer. It's used extensively to prevent blood clots in arteries, the big blood vessels, but it probably isn't as good as preventing blood clots in veins. And there are no studies that are convincingly showing that DVTs, deep vein thrombosis, can be prevented by aspirin. But there are potential complications. People get bleeding, they get stomach ulcers. It's rare at low dose, but because there is a risk and not enough proof of benefit, we do not recommend aspirin for most people. However, if you go to the Harvard Medical School travel advice leaflet, it says take aspirin, <laughs> which is a perfect example of how complicated this area is. Anyhow, our general advice would be not to use aspirin. The evidence suggests that flights four hours and under are very, very low risk for DVT. So travelling around Australia, you probably don't need to worry about clot risk. But longer haul flights anywhere outside Australia, four hours plus, and the longer they are, the higher the risk there is of DVT. It's estimated that about one in four to 5,000 long-haul flights results in a significant thrombosis in the leg, which is actually quite a lot when you think about it, one in four to 5,000. And when they've done studies where they look for clots where people have no symptoms, it's an even higher rate than that. So these are so-called asymptomatic. They probably don't matter, but people are developing blood clots in the deep veins in the legs. So we know it happens. It happens relatively frequently. And the thing that we can do that actually works is use compression socks. And these things are simple, they're cheap, they're safe, they're 
different sizes so you need to get ones that fit it's like so many of these things they have to be a bit uncomfortable for them to work if they're really nice and loose fitting and so on they're probably not compressing anything not doing anything very useful but there are some limited studies on compression socks to show reduced dvt risk so when my wife and i go traveling i always give her a nudge and when we're sitting there waiting to get on the plane we struggle into these ghastly bloody sock things (laughs) feeling confident that it probably reduces our dvt risk Yes, Dr. Spock. uh, I uh, went to a travel medicine conference many years ago um, with a couple of colleagues, with uh, Dr. Karen Leader, who you know, and another colleague, and uh, we were walking in between sessions. We were walking the streets of New York having a look around. He was, you know, he said, Oh, I've got a bit of a calf strain. It's a bit sore as we're walking around. And and he's a travel medicine expert. Uh, It took quite a while before after he was back in Melbourne before he realised that actually what he had was a DVT from the long-haul flight from Uh. Melbourne to New York. And so, and one thing I think that's worth mentioning is that if you have had a DVT before, then there are other things you might do. Yeah, so if if you're people who are at higher risk of DVT, of course, if you've had a clot before, that automatically puts you in higher risk. There are some sort of moderate increased risks, things like pregnancy, obesity, smoking and so on, all put you at slightly higher risk risk of DVT. Much higher risk people who've got a malignancy, cancer of any kind, recent orthopaedic surgery, any kind of clotting disorder which means if you've had a previous clot these people need to go and see their doctors because they can use an injection of a blood thinner, the thing called clexane to take before they go on long haul flights which does make a big difference to reduce risk but really clexane should be for people at high risk. And just a general question about people on medications, what about taking some kind of document with them if they um, need they get sick or if they lose medicines or what, what's your advice there yeah i like to give people a letter just describing any significant medical conditions they have allergies they have medications they're carrying with them and i always say to people this is just your insurance policy i've never actually had anyone hauled over the coals because of the pills they're carrying and had to produce the letter to stop them being carted off to hotel k in bali but i like people to carry these things particularly if they're in an accident or they have some sort of illness so they have some sort of documentation to say what it is that they what what they normally take and uh, just coming, just, sorry, there's one other thing I just want to say about the DVT oh, sorry, thing. Because, sorry. Because, because this to me is really important because a lot of people like to use sleeping tablets for long haul flights. And uh, it's, it surprises me how frequently people come and say, oh, can I just get some Stilnox or some Tamazepam for the long haul flights? And we do get concerned about this because if you are semi anesthetized on a long haul flight, back in in the back of the aeroplane with your legs cramped up and you've had a couple of glasses of wine, you're semi-dehydrated, the oxygen levels are low and you don't move for eight hours because of your sleeping tablet, there is a significantly increased risk of DVT. So I'm no fan of sleeping tablets for anyone because they're ghastly bloody things. Um, But particularly for long-haul flights, I think we have to be really careful. Um, And I, being an asthmatic, I know that I can um, be... Um, or it could lose my medications. So I always take an extra couple of doses, sometimes in my um, suitcase and sometimes in my hand luggage, but always ta- carry hand luggage medications. And also if you're going to get stuck somewhere, so we were stuck in Bali, if you're on anti-rejection medications or um, steroids or always take an extra supply because you just never know what might happen. Um. And how much water would you recommend people drink on a flight? 
I say the how much water question, it, it comes back to the urban myth that we should all drink eight glasses of water every day, <laughs> um, which is, is, is still out there and it's complete nonsense because it was based on some research which measured the amount of water that's in our food as well as our liquid intake and was condensed down to saying that's a total of eight glasses a day. There is no right amount. We should just make sure we don't get dehydrated. And that's all we can say. But staying away from the alcohol is probably a good idea because that does tend to dry you out a bit further as well as stopping you moving around. And my last tip from my director of uh, ID, or deputy director at ID where I work is for young people to take some condoms. <laughs> because <laughs> they, they, we can all have a lot of fun on holidays and younger people have a bit more fun. But that's a, a that actually, in all seriousness, is a really important thing to deal with in a travel medicine consultation with teenagers who don't really think about that being a risk. You know, they don't, and, and they might be going to places where, and they might not do anything. Sort of, they might not be sleeping around, but they might just have one partner who happens to be hepatitis B or HIV or something positive. So they got to be. That's really important. Okay, six seconds to go. And thank you so much, everybody that's been on the show today. Dr. Spock, Dr. Nick Carr, Dr. Kate Gazzard, Dr. Stacey Lynch. And wow, I hope we haven't put you off travel. But uh, anyway, let's all go and have some fun overseas. Bye. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.